Glad you're here. Um, Ryan, our guitarist, had the shred set on high this morning, evidently. Um, yeah, nothing says Holy Spirit come like just epic guitaring. Um, hey, Pearl, yes, that's right, Pearl Jam, that's right. Um, we're so glad you're here, guys, and uh, oh, thank you, Galen. A um, couple of things. If you have a Bible, let's go to Luke uh, chapter 4 is where we'll be today. We also, uh, during this service, we have a team in the Ukraine uh, and they are tuning into this service, so we just want to say, hey, we're go- that was the lamest, really? It's like, I don't know what time it's in Ukraine, but hello! We're glad, hello! And uh, as you know, there's some pretty crazy things going on over there, so we just want to take a moment to pray uh, for our team, but pray for that country as well. So if you would uh, close your eyes, and uh, let's pray. Father, What are the nations to you? Rulers can direct their armies and make their strategic plans, but God, no one and nothing can compare to your glory and your might, your power, your majesty, your sovereignty. And so, Father, we pray what you taught your disciples to pray, that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in the Ukraine as it is in heaven. God, that you would restrain evil, that you would protect life, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on your church to give grace and boldness and wisdom and courage to be your people in the darkness. We pray, God, for great wisdom for the leaders of our countries. Lord, that you would guide them and lead them and that you would bring about peace in that region. We join with millions of others of followers of yours, Jesus, and pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, We're going to focus on one word, so we'll be in Luke chapter 4 for a while. Uh, Luke chapter 4, we'll start in verse 1. Now, if you remember, uh, in our our series, we've taken a couple of weeks off. Jesus has just been baptized. Uh, Luke inserts a genealogy. We'll get to the specific temptations later, but I want to just, you'll see what we want to talk about this morning. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by by the devil. Now the word here means the slanderer. And this is the first time in Luke's account that we read of someone called a devil. Notice, Jesus ate nothing for uh, those days, for those 40 days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. That's an understatement. Devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to Jesus, I will give you all of their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. That's an interesting claim. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. And then the devil quotes a passage from the book of Psalms, at least partially quotes it. God will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he had left him until an opportune time. Now, I didn't want to rush over the word devil here. Uh, 
Because um, as we're going to see in just a moment, uh, the devil becomes a pretty major character in Luke's account of the life of Jesus. And if you're like me, we, we kind of have this sort of implicit, like, really? Aren't we like post-enlightenment, scientific rationalists. I mean, we understand, right, that where mental illness comes from, and we understand where physical illness comes from, and we understand what thunder and lightning is. There's no need to posit, like, these spiritual beings sort of all over the place. But I want to show you that unless you understand the story in this way, you can't really understand the story. Because so much of Jesus' ministry is described as warfare against this adversary. Flip over to chapter 4, verse 33. Now, we're going to look at maybe 10 or 12 passages, all from the first half of Luke, that all have Jesus waging war. You're going to be saying, okay, I got the point like three passages ago. Yep, but I want to show you how prevalent it is, all right? Luke 4, chapter 33. Nope, Luke 4, verse 33. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Interesting, in Luke's accounts, the only people that know who Jesus is for his entire ministry are demons. Which should tell you, theology has a place, but if you don't trust it and live it, I mean, you're in league with demons, right? Because they know the right answers. Jesus, uh, Jesus replied, be quiet, come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all, came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, what words these are? With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. Now, the, the significance of this is that back in the day, you had exorcisms and you had Jewish exorcists, but you had a lot of folks that would rely on amulets and charms and magical formulas and words of power and specific mixtures and elixir, elixirs and just, you had kind of had this whole big like thing you had to do. And here comes this peasant from Nazareth and he just says, be quiet, come out, end of story. Right? No, no like dancing around, no setting the stage, just boom. And so everybody goes, oh, well, this is interesting. Notice, if you would, verse 40, same chapter. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all with various kinds of sickness and laying on his hands, laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, you are the son of God. I just love that. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. We'll get to that, what that means when we get there. Go to chapter six, verse 17. See, this is just all over. I just want to draw your attention. This is all over the Gospels. Jesus went down with them, verse 17, and stood on a level place. A large crowd of disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, from the coastal region who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured. Luke just has these throwaway comments. Go to chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 21. It's just kind of like, yeah, he was out healing and he was preaching. He was casting out demons like it's no big deal. Luke 7, verse 21. We're going to 13, by the way, just so you know. At that time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. I mean, these are just summary statements of his ministry. Chapter 8, verse 1. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, also some women who'd been cured of evil spirits, 
and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Now, how'd you like to be introduced that way? No thanks. But this was just an integral part of Jesus' ministry. Jump over to verse 11. Jesus tells a parable about a farmer scattering seed. Some of the seed lands on soil and gets snatched away. His disciples say, okay, so what's the metaphor? What's the story here? Jesus explains it. Verse 11. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear it. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Okay, so evidently this devil is real. This devil is involved in sickness. Not all sickness, but some sickness. And this devil can prevent people from coming, or at least war against or oppose people coming to Jesus. Go to verse 26. Actually, verse 27, same chapter. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? See, I mean, constantly, the demons knew exactly who he was. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into a solitary place. Jesus, of course, rescues the man very famously. Chapter 9, verse 1. I know you've got the point, but we'll just keep making it for a little while longer. I mean, it's too much Bible. I'm sorry. I apologize. I'll try to cut down. Luke chapter 9, verse 1. With Jesus, I missed you guys. Yeah, that was one way. Luke chapter 9, verse 1. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons. So evidently the authority Jesus has can be given to others. Flip over to verse 37. Same chapter. The next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. Now, Jesus says something interesting that we'll get to when we get here. You unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? (laughs) Okay, well, that was warm and fuzzy. Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But the, Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, gave him back to his father. Jump over to chapter 10. Jesus sends out 12, and then he sends out 72 of his followers. He gives them instructions. They come back. Verse 17. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he replied, I saw Satan Fall like lightning from heaven. We'll talk about what that means when we get there. Chapter 11. You get in the picture? A couple more. Chapter 11, verse 14. Jesus was so good at casting out demons, his opponents finally looked at him and said, well, it's because you, you are one. <laughs> it's like the biggest slander they could think of. Yeah, yeah you're really good at casting out demons because you're working with them. Jesus responds, verse 17, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a house divided itself will fall. If Satan, now Satan and devil are used synonymously. Satan means 
adversary. And, and it's used as a proper name in the Old Testament once, but it's a title. And it's, and it's mostly pronounced Ha-Satan, the adversary. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his what? His kingdom stand. So Satan has a kingdom. I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by, and here's the name of the prince of demons that they were using. Now if I drive out demons by him, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive demons, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. So here's the image Jesus uses. Okay, the earth is under siege and held hostage by a strong man. The possessions of the earth are the people of the earth and the earth itself, all held under the groaning weight of sin and death. Jesus comes and he's casting out demons and his opponents accuse him of being one. He says, no, no, no. Why would Satan wage war against himself? I mean, a house divided will fall. But what you're seeing is me tying up the strong man, guarding the earth, and then plundering people out of it, rescuing them, setting them free, calling them into the freedom that comes from following me. Chapter 13, one last one. Verse 10. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who'd been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. Now, Jesus heals her, but because it's on the Sabbath, he gets in trouble. You weren't supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. Healing was working. If the person's life wasn't in danger, she'd had this for 18 years. Clearly, her life was not in danger. Jesus heals, picks a fight. The religious leaders object. Jesus responds, verse 15, you hypocrites, doesn't each, bless you, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, Jewish, in other words, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day? Now, jet tour, all making one simple point. You cannot understand the ministry of Jesus without understanding the warfare that erupted around it. Now, if you're like me, there's a part of me, whenever you start talking about devil and Satan, that just goes, really? 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 I mean, aren't we a little bit beyond this, you know? I mean, I get third world countries believe in this stuff. I mean, I get it, but aren't we, aren't we just a little bit beyond this? Right? And, 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 and there are some in the Christian community who take this way too seriously, like far too seriously, and they see spiritual attack behind flat tires and my kid got a bad report card and oh, I got a cold, it's a, a, the enemy. And you just go, no, I think sometimes viruses happen. You know, I mean, I don't think it's strategically of the enemy. Um, but so, so many of us look at those folks and say, well, you're taking it too seriously. And, and we go to the opposite extreme and don't take it seriously enough. And, and I want to talk to those people. I'm one of those people who, who just, I believe all of this in theory as a piece of theology, but I don't believe it as a piece of reality. And yet, the scriptures are so clear that the universe is populated by spiritual agents, some of whom are working in opposition to God 
and his purposes in the world. I mean, when you flip to the rest of the New Testament, I mean, notice some of the titles given to this. Being. Jesus says three times in John, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. The word prince here is the word archon, and it means the highest governing official. So Jesus, three times, John 12, John 14, prince of this world, John 16, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So he's called the prince of this world. Notice, in Acts, Jesus' whole ministry, in the middle of one of the speeches that's given about Jesus, it says, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, verse 38, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil. So Jesus' ministry, at least by his earliest followers, was understood as releasing people from the bondage of this adversary. In Ephesians 2, he's called the ruler of the kingdom of the air, in verse 2. The spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. 2 Corinthians, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. <coughs> Pardon me. So they cannot see the light of the gospel. 1 John, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And then lastly, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Now, obvious point. You cannot take the ministry, work, and person of Jesus of Nazareth seriously and not understand this. That earth is a battleground. And for me, I find it really easy to believe in God. I find it really easy to believe in angels. I find it a little harder to believe in demons. Until I got thinking about it, I actually have an easier time believing in God because the scriptures say there are agents of evil at work in the world. Just imagine... If all you had was God and every single thing was Him doing, right? Whatever that thing was. So every ounce of evil you could trace back to Him. What kind of God would that be? So what the scripture says is it's the evil in the world is the result of us and our free choices, yes. It's the result of the fall and the alienation of creation from the purposes of the Creator, yes. But there are these spiritual agents of intelligence and power that can wreak havoc on earth too. And so whenever we talk about why do bad things happen, well, the easy part is to say, well, because we screw it up. Yeah, that's part of it. But the scriptures say there's another reason. That there are these spiritual agents of intelligence and power that are not God's equal, but are God's opposite, who wage war against us. If you're like me, I love it as theology, I just don't really buy it. And part of the reason why we don't buy it is because the way we look at the world has has room only for God and like creation and that's it. So you have the world of particles and motion and chemistry and physics and then you have God and that's it. But the scripture keeps insisting that God created other beings, spiritual beings of intelligence and power, and some of those have rebelled. So that you and I live now in the midst of a cosmic war. The ending of that war is assured, but the war is still raging. And so the scriptures repeatedly warn us to pay attention. One of the reasons why we have trouble believing this is because we think that if we're Jesus followers, we can't be touched. Problem is, that's not what the scriptures teach. 
all of the warnings about this adversary were given to Christians. Beware, your enemy prowls like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, was written to Christians. When Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger, lest you give the enemy a foothold, written to Christians. So we have a hard time buying this stuff. Some of the reason is, well, we just, it doesn't fit our worldview. Another part of the reason is, well, we just don't believe we can really be touched. Another reason we have a hard time swallowing it is because we really don't understand the nature of the authority we have in Jesus. And so, you know, it's kind of like, well, I never want to, like, I want to just keep my head down. I never want to talk about this stuff or pray against this stuff because, you know, bad things can come my way. But think about the cost of not believing this stuff. Why is it, see, my dad, my dad was a Marine, my stepfather uh, fought in the Korean War, my uh, father-in-law fought in the Vietnam War, and you know what they said? They were never surprised when people were shooting at them. They kind of knew that was like what it was about. But when we tell people Jesus is the answer to every problem, and don't tell them when they take steps towards God there is the possibility that life will get a bit harder and will fall apart, right? We're, we, we don't prepare them to be shot at, in other words. And so they're surprised. They think something's wrong with God or something's wrong with them when in actuality, as J.R.R. Tolkien said in The Hobbit so brilliantly, it will not do to leave a live dragon out of your calculations if you live near him. <laughs> right? And so... I just invite us this morning, very obviously, right, no profound point, to consider the live dragon in our calculations. Because depending on the story you think you're living, that, that, that causes you to live in certain ways. Let me give you an example. If you think the story of your life, like what genre of movie is your life? Is your life just a romantic comedy where the sole point is you finding love and happiness? Is it, is it Braveheart, you know, where, where you charging, you know, into a, a battle with a kilt, which I love? <laughs> right? Is it, is it a drama where you're going to overcome monstrous odds to find success and personal achievement? Or is it a bit like Saving Private Ryan, if you've ever seen that movie, where you're kind of storming enemy-held occupy your enemy held territory and you're getting shot at and no one storming Normandy Beach was wondering hey why are we getting shot at no one was asking that question see war is the backdrop for the whole thing it's not just one option and and brothers and sisters I'm just inviting us to keep the live dragon in our calculations that's all this is we don't want to give him too much credit he's a created being Right? The name of Jesus has incredible authority over him and the person of Jesus. But I want you to understand, part of what we are called to do as his people is to share in the plundering of other people held in captivity. And to do that, you just have to be awake. Part of the battle is knowing you're in one. And so men and women, we just want to say, listen, we don't want to just believe in Jesus. We want to see the world the way Jesus did. And the way Jesus saw the world was there is a battle between two kingdoms. And we're either feeding the one or feeding the other. Now let me give you an example of how this plays out. 
These are from my grandparents. These are war ration books from the Second World War. Now, it's fascinating. I mean, I've heard stories. Some of, some of us, we've got some folks in our church who actually remember these. But they're little coupons. And, and you would, the government would hand these out, and you would have to turn these in to buy certain products. And you could only buy so much for a certain price. But notice the instructions. Rationing is a vital part of your country's war effort. Any attempt to violate the rules is an effort to deny someone his share and will create hardship and help the enemy. So, so much of the country's resources were going to war. Your job as a citizen, this wasn't to soldiers, this was to citizens, was to go without. This book is your government's assurance of your right to buy your fair share of certain goods made scarce by war. Price ceilings have been established for your protection. Give your whole support to rationing and thereby conserve our vital goods. Be guided by the rule. If you don't need it, don't buy it. And what struck me when I pulled this out last night was this is what a warfare mindset looks like. If you see yourself in a war, you live differently, right? In this instance, you, you operated by these. And, and if you didn't need it, you didn't buy it. And, and you would go without for the sake of some greater purpose. And it was everybody together who was living this way, right? This is a warfare mindset. This is a credit card mindset. A credit card mindset is the opposite of a rationing mindset. Would you agree? A credit card mindset says... If I want it, I buy it, and I'll pay for it later. A credit card mindset says, it doesn't matter if my purchasing takes away from anybody else, because it's really only about what I want when I want it, and how I want it. A a credit card mindset is really about me and my wants, no greater good attached. And and what I want to simply suggest in these two examples is that if you begin to take the dragon into your calculations, you begin to recognize that all, have you, all that you've been given exists for much bigger purposes than just your enjoyment of it. See, the difference between a credit card mindset and a rationing mindset is the difference between a group of Jesus followers that doesn't get the battle and one that does. Because when you get that we're in the battle, it matters that there are more slaves today than there ever have been on the face of the earth. It matters that human trafficking is literally in our doorstep in Orange County. It matters about racism. It matters about prejudice. That stuff matters. It matters. And so what God is looking for are people who are willing to do without for the sake of the greater good. But that's not the Christian mindset in America. We're individualistic, we're consumeristic, we are materialistic, and doggone it, I live like I'm on vacation. The goal of vacation is to have fun. The goal of vacation is to indulge myself in convenience and security, to look out for number one, that's it. And we just want to say, no, no, no. If this is true, it demands something much more rigorous from God's people. Because you exist, and I exist to share in the plundering. And so as people who've been set free, I mean, can you imagine the offense of the set free people sitting around going, hey, 
The bulk of the resources should be going to us. You don't win wars that way. You don't fight wars that way. And I get the warfare image is a bit weird for folks, right? I mean, it's like, really? Is this how the Bible is going to describe it? Go, if you would, to the book of Ephesians. I want to talk about that for a second. Are you guys with me on this? I mean, I was so convicted by looking at, I mean, here's my grandparents' name. Here's their address. And here's their commitment to not taking more than what they needed. Absolutely amazing. And so forth. Can you imagine how many Americans would sign up for this voluntarily today? What percentage? One? What percentage of our churches? What percentage of us? I mean, I mean, there's just a sense in which we buy this as theology, we don't buy it as reality. And Paul's really clear, Ephesians chapter 6. Did I say 4? I meant 6 if I said 4. Don't ever trust what I say. Just <laughs> Ephesians chapter 6, very famously. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. By the way, this is written to a church. You, by yourself, can never have the full armor of God. Just so we're clear. This is what a church does. For our struggle is not against what? Flesh and blood. But it's so much more fun to wage war against flesh and blood, right? And so, okay, Christians, who's our enemy? No, 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 no. Don't ask our theology. Who does the world say? Who does the world think is our enemy? What? Gay community, illegal immigrants, Democrats, (laughs) and one in particular. The Supreme Court, the Congress, big business, right? I mean, and, and, and we kind of give off that impression, don't we? And I'm all for political activism, but I'm not for the idea that our political activism leads people to believe that they're the enemy when the real one prowls like a lion. See, brothers and sisters, the warfare mindset isn't a mindset to go take back America for God. I'd love if that happened, but it doesn't happen militarily. It doesn't happen politically, and it doesn't happen economically. We got a big old bag of weapons, brothers and sisters, that none of us want to use. Foot washing, service, sacrifice, generosity, kindness, right? Forgiveness, reconciliation, grace, truth, mercy, compassion. I mean, that's who we follow. How did Jesus triumph over the powers? By forgiving them as they put him to death. Well, that's what we signed up for, men and women. That's what it looks like to overcome the enemy. 
When the author of Revelation says, he looks at a bunch of martyrs and he says they overcame the dragon by the word of their testimony and their shed blood in the name of Jesus. I mean, you just go, this is what we've signed up for. So be politically active. Go for it. Part of our responsibility and obligation, but don't do it in a way that leads people to think they're the enemy. If it's as flesh and blood, we're fighting for it. Men and women. Hold on a second. That was awesome. I just didn't know how to respond with a room full of mostly white people all of a sudden. But you're not white, and that's what I love. So you can lead it. So, so no profound point here. But, but it's just simply this. Two thoughts to close. Thought number one, some of you are currently being oppressed by the adversary. And maybe it hasn't ever dawned on you that the enemy would be after you. And I know it feels weird to say and weird to talk about, but let me just give you examples of what oppression looks like. I've lived some of these. The enemy is called the slanderer and the accuser. If you're a follower of Jesus and you are so weighed down by guilt and shame, you find it utterly impossible to believe that God could love you and that there is no condemnation. It's one of the lies of the enemy. If you find yourself thinking life isn't worth living, it'll never get better, there is no hope, there's the lies of the enemy. If you find yourself utterly convinced you could never be forgiven because you've sinned too much, It's a life for the enemy. If you find yourself unable to overcome a particular habit or thought pattern. Now listen, I believe there are physical, I think we're whole beings. So there's a physical basis, there's an emotional basis, there's a mental basis. But does it hurt to include the possibility of a spiritual basis for addiction too? See, it just does not do well to leave the live dragon out of our calculations. I'm not saying it all is of him, but are we at least open to the possibility? See, I think there are some of us who are so paralyzed by fear. There is no hope in us. First, I rebuke you for absorbing talk radio and news all day. You can do better. But secondly, it could be that the adversary is just sucking hope out of you. I mean, who knows? But here's the deal. We've just assembled a a crack team of prayer ninjas. And they're going to be over in that room. And we're not going to ask you to go now because no one wants to say, hey, I'm oppressed by the devil right now, so hi. My name's Mike. You know, no one wants to do that. But would you, I beg you, I exhort you in the name of Jesus to consider the possibility that there are brothers and sisters willing to pray over you and that that prayer is powerful. The second thing is this. Men and women, what does it look like to live your life as if it were not a vacation? Bless you. What does it look like to live your life as if you were involved in something much larger and important than your own personal fulfillment? We are raising the most self-indulged and unhappiest generation in the history of the planet. Why? Because the words of Jesus ring true in pop psychology and everywhere else. If you want to save your life, 
you must lose it. And so what does it look like to live by credit cards or to live by ration coupons? What does it look like to see that you have a part to play in the freeing of captives? What does it look like to see your role as more significant than you could possibly imagine? Not because you're all that awesome, but because Jesus, for whatever reason, is looking for cooperative participants in his plundering of the strong man's kingdom. So would you stand up and would you close your eyes? We're going to continue to worship, but I want to just pray over you. I just want to pray over you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, who came in the flesh and who is now sitting at the right hand of God Almighty in the process of putting all things under His feet, mighty God, we pray that You would come and that You would wake us up. Father, I pray for those that are held in bondage at this moment. I pray, Father God, that You would wake them up. If there are doors, there are avenues that left open to the enemy's influence, I pray, Holy Spirit, You would come and Your kindness would lead to repentance. And I pray for those, God, who look at You and wonder why all of the bad things happen. I pray that there might be this other part to the equation to now consider that they might believe there is no darkness in You. And Father, I do pray in the name of Jesus that You would wage war on behalf of us, that You would protect marriages, you'd protect children, that you would protect, Lord, not because we're on vacation, but because we recognize there is a real enemy. And so, Father, we invite you by the name of Jesus to just come. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. We sang that, but we pray that. Come and set captives free. Come and reveal Jesus to us. Come and wake us up, we pray.